I will read for us the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word this evening. And God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that, your, that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. We know that sin not only affects the way we live, but it affects our hearts and it affects our minds, that we cannot even think as we ought to unless by your spirit, you enlighten our minds. And so we ask that you would open our eyes, that you would open up our minds and our hearts to understand your word, that we would love you, live for you and your glory in our lives. Amen. You may be seated. Let me get this songbook out of my way. All right, so we're diving into the seventh commandment together this evening. As we've seen and read in Exodus 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Now, sex is one of those topics that can be very uncomfortable to talk about. I remember a number of years ago, uh, back when Lexi and I were still at Emmaus Road Church before Livingstone was planted, that Emmaus Road did a sermon series on the Song of Solomon, and Pastor Dan Breed, uh, he's a bold man. He often preached books that other people avoided. Um, he introed the whole series by addressing to the congregation the reality that preaching through Song of Solomon might be uncomfortable for some people. He said something along the lines, I don't remember his exact words, but he said, there are going to be things in this book that make you feel a little embarrassed or uncomfortable. But know that with my four daughters sitting up front in these services, I probably feel more uncomfortable than you do. 
And I believe that he probably felt more uncomfortable than anybody else in the congregation other than maybe his four daughters who are sitting up front. But sex is something we need to talk about as Christians for no other reason than that the Bible talks about it. But beyond that first and most basic reason, there are two other big reasons I think that we need to talk about a Christian sexual ethic. And the first is that our culture is increasingly becoming confused about sexuality. One of the strongest temptations for Christians to drift from biblical teaching is in the area of Christian sexual ethics. So we need clarity. We need to talk about it more and not less for that reason. But second, understanding and living out a biblical sexual ethic is a significant part of our own personal discipleship. We need to see that the problem with sexuality doesn't just exist out there, but dwells within our own fallen hearts And we need the work of God by his word and his spirit to transform us in that area. So we need it for two reasons, the culture out there and the sinfulness in here. And we need to address both of those if we're going to address biblical Christian uh, sexuality. So the scope of this uh, short message tonight can't cover every possible area that the seventh commandment is applied in our culture and in our lives. Uh, My desire is to zoom in on the foundation and the applications of the seventh commandment, as we saw in Exodus chapter 20. But like with many themes, we do this often at Living Stone, to understand what we're talking about, we need to go back to the beginning. To understand the sin of adultery and human sexuality, we need to go back to God's design. So turn with me uh, to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. This is the place to go. I think, to begin any discussion on this topic. If you're looking at me with Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, look to verses 27 and 28. I'm not going to read these for us, but notice if you're looking through those two verses that we see God's creation of man and woman. That he gave man to woman together, and he gave them the charge to be fruitful, to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. So here's the first picture we have in scripture of human sexuality. God creating man and woman, two distinct sexes, both bearing his image with the intention, at least partially, that male and female together would lead to them being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. A picture of uh, one of the main purposes of human sexuality, right there from Genesis chapter one. Then in Genesis chapter two, you turn with me, probably the next page in your Bible, we get a zoomed in picture on God's design for marriage specifically, verses 18 through 25. Again, I'm not going to read through all these, but this is a good place for you to go back on your own get, to get some good foundational things here. Uh, in these verses, we have the institution of marriage, how man and woman were made to be fit for one another, uh, to go together in a way that they wouldn't with any other. And we see that God constituted in marriage a new family covenant unit or relationship. A man would leave his father and his mother and join or cleave to his wife and the two would become one flesh. So we get a picture of the nature of the marriage relationship as being this constitution of a new thing between one man and one woman. I think that gives us a summary of God's design for sexuality. 
and its place and his purpose for mankind in the context of one man, one woman, a covenant relationship called marriage. It's not just this cultural construct. Some people uh, use this, I will express this idea that marriage is just something that was created by humans to repress people. No, it's a divine institution and it is a blessing for people. It is one of God's great gifts to humanity, not something that is oppressive or uh, a re- to repress people, at least in its basic uh, meaning and its intention. And I think once we understand that, then we can move forward to understand the seventh commandment and its seriousness, why we should take this seriously. Most simply, the command, the seventh command is to not commit adultery. That's simply the command in its most narrow sense. So if you are married, it's to not sleep with somebody who is not your spouse or to not go and have a sexual relationship with someone who is married to somebody else. Don't commit adultery. But when we look at how the foundation for this commandment is God's design for marriage, the seventh commandment is much broader than just adultery. It's a call to, commit, uh, to respect God's design for the marriage relationship. And anything that would go outside of the bounds of God's intention in marriage is beyond the bounds of this commandment. This means that the seventh commandment isn't just narrowly about adultery. It's also broadly about a whole host of things that are related to human sexuality, whether it's sex outside of marriage in general, or homosexuality, or pornography, uh, crude jokes. You could go on and on. If you want to read through the Westminster Larger Catechism, it gives us this long list of things that are related to the topic of the seventh commandment and how we are supposed to live in light of God's design. But this commandment not only hits outward physical things, it also hits the attitudes of our hearts. Jesus. He said in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we need to see here that it's not just physical, it's also our hearts. We need to be clear on the the truth that sinful desires are themselves sinful. It's not just sinful if you act on it. If you have a draw and a desire in your heart towards something that is ungodly, even if you don't act on that desire, that is still sinful and something that needs to be fought against, something that needs to be put to death in us by the work of God's spirit in us. We also need to hear Jesus' next two verses after that commandment, as he explains that adultery is a matter of the heart. His next two verses, I think, really show the weight of how Jesus thought about this commandment. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. Now, Jesus isn't saying you need to literally tear out your eyes and cut off your hands or all of us will be blind and handless, right? But he is conveying the seriousness of this commandment that none of us, uh, that we should all take seriously fleeing from the sin of adultery. It's not something that we ought to take lightly. 
It's a matter of life and death, according to Jesus. So for that reason, I want to just share a few practical encouragements to you. Uh, These are encouragements that are intended for all of you, whether you're married or single, whether you're caught in sexual addiction or you're not. All Christians, wherever you are right now in your walk, need to positively and actively cultivate a God-honoring sexual ethic, okay? So here's just a few encouragements for you. The first is something that if you're here, you're already taking seriously, but I have to encourage you still, go to church. Go to church. The primary place where God intends to sanctify us and grow us in any area is through the ordinary means that he has given to his people, through reading his word, through sitting under the preaching of God's word, through church discipline and prayer, through the Lord's Supper, the sacraments. So if you're feeling trapped by sin of any kind, and especially sexual sin, don't give into the temptation to isolate yourself, to think that you should cut yourself off from the people of God. No, instead of running away and isolating yourself, run to the people of God, run to church, gather with God's people. And that's related to the second point then, which is seek accountability. Seek accountability. We weren't created to rush into battle against sin by ourselves in any area, let alone this one. So find a trusted friend, find a mentor who can encourage you, who can pray for you, who can keep you accountable in this area. Third, pursue and support healthy marriages. Pursue and support healthy marriages. One of the best ways to prevent adultery in a marriage is to pursue pursue health and intimacy in your marriage if you are married. There's a positive side of it, right? Cultivating that relationship with your husband or your wife. And if you're not married, then according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, at least one of, and not the only, but one of the ways to pursue sexual purity if you are not married and you struggle with sexual temptation is through pursuing marriage. Now, that isn't clearly the answer to everything. And if then we say that being single is not also a high calling, we're missing what Paul says directly after that in 1 Corinthians 7. But we shouldn't lessen Paul's encouragement for people who struggle, that this can be a good thing for you to positively pursue. So whether you're married or you're single, it should be a desire for you to see, pursue, or at least support the healthy marriages Uh, in the people that you know, in your own life, and in the church. Fourth is know the water that you swim in. Know the water that you swim in. You've probably heard the joke, I think I've quoted it a couple times in church, that two fish were swimming along. They swam by an older fish who was going the other way. It was passing them, and of course, just being nice, the older fish said, how's the water? And the two younger fish replied, what's water? Right? What's water? They were swimming in it at all times, but sometimes the thing that you are constantly immersed in is the thing that you aren't aware exists. And that is often applied to the reality of culture. And we need to be aware of the culture we swim in and the currents of the culture that we swim in. Uh, And if you don't do that, then you're probably going to be more influenced by the culture than you will influence it. And we need to be aware of the culture that we swim in when it comes to sexuality. Don't think that the water that you swim in has no effect on you. So have a critical eye and a critical awareness to what you take in, whether it's social media, 
movies and TV shows, music, the news. I'm not going to make decisions, say you cannot watch this TV show or that. That's something you need to do on your own. But please at least be intentional in that area. Keep your eyes open. Be aware of what you are being taught by what you see and what you hear and make wise decisions as a Christian. And then fifth, and this is the biggest of all of them, the fifth is to pursue the superior joy of knowing God. Pursue the superior joy of knowing God. Sex makes a terrible God. Sex makes a terrible God. It will never deliver to you what temptation promises. That it will satisfy all of your desires. That it will make all of your dreams come true. That's one of the biggest lies that we can be tempted to believe in our culture right now. That a life without sex is an unfulfilled life. That sex is the highest pleasure and the greatest good that any person can experience to become a whole person. Don't give in to that lie. Sex is a terrible God. Now, Christianity doesn't teach that sex is bad. It teaches that it's good. But it also teaches that it's not everything, right? Ultimately, we're tempted to believe that sex can be a replacement for us of our God. And that means that one of the best ways to fight against sexual temptation of any kind is to pursue the higher pleasure and joy of knowing the one true God, not false gods, the true God. Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish Presbyterian minister in the 19th century, a man who founded a theological school in Edinburgh, a school that we visited, which was really fun. He laid the cornerstone. It's cool to go see Thomas Chalmers School at the University of Edinburgh. Um, But he preached probably his most famous sermon, which was titled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Maybe you've heard that before. If you've, uh, I know plenty of uh, pretty well-known pastors have quoted from him before. I first heard and read through this sermon with my pastor in college. But the title again teaches us so much, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And here's how he begins that sermon. It's really instructive for us in how to fight against sin. He says, there are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world. So there are two ways that people attempt to displace a love of the world in their heart, right? The first is either by a demonstration of the world's vanity so that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regards from an object that is not worthy of it. Okay, so the first option he says is by saying, this will never give you what you want. This is not good, right? So pull away from that thing, that thing that is not worthy of your heart. But then he gives the second option here. He says, or by setting forth another object, even God as more worthy of its attachment. So that as the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. So the idea here is not just getting rid of wrong affections, but pursuing something that is better, that will displace, right? You get the idea of displacement, like water. If you push down, it pushes it away. It's the way with sin. You, if you have a new affection that is greater than that sinful desire in you, that will displace or push out. It will take away the room made in your heart for those sinful desires. And I love that, that picture of displacement by pursuing something higher. 
something better, not by pursuing less, not just by cutting away, but by adding. And we need to do that when we pursue our relationship with God. Sanctification has a positive and a negative side. Cut away sin, die to sin, but also come to life in Christ. See our God and know him. And a verse that I quote often uh, in our sermons is Psalm 1611. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Only God offers full joy and eternal pleasure. Okay? We need to get that straight in our minds, in our hearts, as we chase after our God. And let me just end with one final observation for us then. The seventh commandment speaks of more than physical adultery. It also speaks of spiritual adultery. In many places in the Old Testament, when people would forsake their covenant with God, they would chase after other gods, they would chase after sin, the Lord, through his prophets, would call out the people for adultery. Specifically, use that language, you adulterous people. The idea is that they were fleeing away from the God that they were in a covenant relationship with and pursuing another. They were pursuing another lover. They were pursuing something that would take the place of God in their hearts and they were breaking their covenant relationship. They were breaching that covenant just like physical adultery. And we do that too. We run after other gods. We chase after sin. In the book of Hosea, which we're diving into in the month of October, as we dive into the minor prophets this fall, Hosea is meant to be an illustration as a book of Israel's spiritual adultery, but also a picture of God's covenant continued faithfulness to his bride. Israel had run after other gods. They had run after Baal, right? But the Lord declares to them something that's beautiful in Hosea chapter 2, verses 16 through 20. Let me read this for you. It's talking about a day that is coming. The Lord will redeem his people. He says, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land and I will make you lie down in safety. Notice these last couple sentences here. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. The good news of the gospel is that although we have been an unfaithful bride, Physically and spiritually, our God is a faithful husband who keeps his covenant and his promises to betroth us to himself in righteousness, justice, steadfast love, and faithfulness. And that is what our God has done for us in Christ, the great husband of God's people, who according to Ephesians chapter 5, 25 to 27, loved his bride the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without 
blemish. If you are in Christ, then your filthiness and dirtiness of your unfaithfulness, of your sexual sin, or any impurity is washed away. You are clean. You are robed with the royal robes of Jesus. And you are given an eternity in the joyful presence of our God and our Lord Jesus, the great and eternally faithful husband. That is good news in the midst of a culture that is sexually confused and in the midst of our own hearts that so often pursue after wrong things, both sexual things and pursuing after other gods who will not satisfy. Our God is faithful in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that, pre- that promise in Hosea 2 that has come to its reality in Jesus, that you established a new and better covenant with Jesus, a better high priest who makes offerings for our sin, who gave himself up for his bride to wash us, to purify us and sanctify us. Help us, God, in our sanctification to run away from our sin, to flee from it, to be like people who cut it, off, cut it out and tear it out from us, knowing that it is a disease that kills us from the inside out. And instead that we would pursue you, our great God, and the joys that are found in your presence forevermore. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our great husband. Amen. All right. I think it's appropriate for us to confess our sin before our God, especially uh, the song that we're going to be singing this evening. We haven't sung it in a couple months. Come and make us free. It's a song about how we pursue after other things, that we are, that we are a, a slave to lowly thoughts that we cannot shake, the lust of our eyes, pride of life, hardened hearts that ne'er will break, that we hear and know that only Jesus Christ can satisfy, yet we seek to have our thirsty souls satisfied by things that will never quench our thirst. And that is what we confess in the choruses. We, we remind ourselves that all that our hearts long for is found in God and in him alone. So uh, let's uh, take some time now and confess our sins together as we sing uh, 22, Come and Make Us Free. <laughs>